This episode of No Place Like Home is being brought to you by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to get out there and explore, enjoy, and protect the planet. Join our 3 million members and supporters working to power this nation with 100% clean energy at sierraclub.org. And now on to this episode of No Place Like Home. Hi, I'm Anna Jane Joyner. And I'm Marianne Hitt. This is No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. Today, we explore creation care, epiphany moments, and the concept of Earth as mother and life giver. I also chat with one of my all-time favorite people and most cherished mentors, Peter Illion, the executive director of Restoring Eden, a leading Christian environmentalist and thought leader, and also a former evangelical pastor. But first, Marianne and I have some catching up to do. So this has been an intense couple of weeks, and I'm really looking forward to catching up with you, Marianne. Um, but first, I just wanted to like take a minute and give a shout out um, to everyone who is suffering and impacted by the recent hurricanes especially all of the American citizens in Puerto Rico who are without energy and water right now. Our hearts and thoughts are with you, and we encourage all of our listeners to do whatever they can to support our our fellow Americans who are in these places that have been ravaged by hurricanes and flooding in the past couple of weeks. Yes, our love and our thoughts are with all of you, most definitely, and uh, especially down in Puerto Rico. is such a tragedy, and we need to help out any way we can. We also want to let uh, folks know that Anna Jane and I are going to be in Los Angeles the week of October the 2nd for the Work It Podcast Festival for Women in Podcasting that's being put on by WNYC. We are so excited and we hope we're so excited excited. and we hope that we will (laughs) see some of you there. So if you're a lady podcaster, uh, please connect with us and we will be excited to report back. But all these great shows like Death, Sex, and Money, and Two Dope Queens, and I could go on, but I will not, are going to be there, and it's like a dream come true. So love to see you there if you're going to be there, fellow lady podcasters. Um, And uh, speaking of Los Angeles, where we will be together in a couple weeks, I just got back from there. Um, I know. You were at a very snazzy event, and I want to hear all about it. Well, it was the Environmental Media Association's Annual Awards Gala. And I had never been before, but I was invited uh, to come and present a Lifetime Achievement Award to Michael Bloomberg, who is the biggest supporter of the campaign I run at the Sierra Club, the Beyond Coal campaign. Uh, And the film that Bloomberg Philanthropies supported about coal from the ashes. We had the director on here uh, a couple episodes back. That movie was also nominated for the best documentary. So I got to not only go and attend, but I got to stand up on the stage in front of an airplane hangar full of celebrities and Hollywood heavy hitters and talk to them about the work I'm doing and to honor Michael Bloomberg. And it was, it was intense. (laughs) Let me just tell you, I don't know (laughs) that I have ever done anything uh, that remotely compares to the feeling of standing up on that stage, but it was such a big honor. And uh, I got so much great feedback afterwards of, you know, people who appreciated our work and what I had to say. So you would have loved it, Anna Jane. 
Oh, I'm I'm jealous, but also like it just sounds magical and amazing. And I I saw that you got to hang out with our old friend Ian Summerhalder. How is he doing? Yes, these Ian days? Summerhalder. We were both in the Years of Living Dangerously season one with him and his uh, new wife Nikki Reed. And I will tell you, they are the most like well rested seeming parents of a newborn <laughs> ever met. Their baby is I think eight weeks old and they just look like they had been sleeping well and maybe they're just such beautiful people that it never uh you know it, they're like impervious it's to all it. those vitamins you take. <laughs> but he was like a vitamin king. I got some tips from him. Well they were the like floating on a cloud of happiness <laughs> about being new parents, which was awesome. And they got to present an award to uh Joel Bach of Years of Living Dangerously, who we also have had on the podcast, and his co-producer, uh, David Gelber, they won the award for, uh, I think it was Best Reality uh, Series or something to that effect. And, oh, and so, I love that. That like warms my heart so and well And Ian deserved. and Nikki presented them with the award. So great. And you know, the other thing about it that was so cool, I mean, you had, I'm not trying to name drop, but you had people there like Natalie Portman and... Russell Simmons and what? Russell Simmons and Van Jones and everybody was there to to celebrate great storytelling in about climate change and about the environment, which is the passion of both of us on on this show. Oh, I love it! And it was so really much. encouraging to just see how many you know celebrities and Hollywood executives and people who are doing the legwork, making all the entertainment we consume, how much they care about this and. And what a priority it is. And it's really um, came. I am coming back even more fired up about just uh, how many people want to tell good stories out there about the fate of our planet. So thank you, Environmental Media Association and Bloomberg Philanthropies, all of whom made it possible for me to be there. Uh, And thanks to everybody out there who's trying to tell better climate stories. Yes, it's so critical. And I'm just I'm beaming thinking about that gathering of people and all of the amazing things that have already come out of it and that will come out of it. And speaking of compelling (laughs) climate stories, I've recently seen Darren Aronofsky, who's one of my favorite directors, and I know he's also a huge supporter of the Sierra Club. He recently came out with a movie starring Jennifer Lawrence and Javier Bardem. Um, called Mother that uh, is really a metaphor for climate change. And it has a lot of religious undertones that are extremely interesting and thought-provoking. I've now seen it twice, and I will say it is one of the more scary and intense movies that I've ever seen. It's not a horror movie in the traditional sense of the word, but it is it is sincerely one of, the, one of the most you know scary movies I've ever seen. But also, I, I don't know, it really got me thinking about like how to use metaphor in film and storytelling in a, in creative ways to, to get people to think about this, which I think was really Darren Aronofsky and Jennifer Lawrence. They've both given lots of interviews about how this was really inspired by their concern about climate change, among other things, but primarily climate change. And um, it was, you know, it, it's one of those movies that I feel pretty confident will be talked about for years and studied at film schools and, it's definitely worth seeing. I would see it maybe in the comfort of your own home with a glass slash <laughs> bottle of wine. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I've been, I really have been, I've been thinking about it a lot and, and just it's such a great example of uh, not only Hollywood directors and stars, you know, Jennifer Lawrence is the highest paid, you know, movie star, female movie star on the planet right now. And the fact that she felt so compelled about climate change to, to use her star power and her time and energy to tell the story is really 
remarkable and I'm so grateful, but also Hollywood, you know, studios, Paramount made this picture and they really felt, you know, passionate, even though it was very uh, controversial and (laughs) kind of um, uh, courageous, I think is the word that they use, not kind of the typical blockbuster, but, but they really felt like it was a story that needed to be told. And so I just want to say thank you to Darren Aronofsky and, and Jennifer Lawrence and all the people involved in that film. Um, even though it was extremely thought provoking and, and scary and crazy, I, I really do think it started a lot of critical conversations. And I am personally inspired to think more about creative ways of talking about this issue. Um, and I think a lot more people are thinking about it right now as a result of that. Well, of let that me uh, let me just read this little quote. So I haven't seen it because as we've already established, I am a wimp. But I read this article about it in the New York Times on Sunday. And uh, the reporters interviewing Darren Aronofsky and Jennifer Lawrence, and they're having a disagreement about whether to just explain the allegory or not. And Darren Aronofsky favors not revealing it. But Jennifer Lawrence is like, oh, come on, people need to understand it. So. So they reveal the allegory, and uh, here's a little quote for you. It says, thematic spoilers ahead, but rest assured that even if you absorb them, the movie will throw curveballs. Mother is about Mother Earth, Ms. Lawrence, and God, Mr. Bardem, Javier Bardem, plays her husband, whose poetic hit has the weight of the Old Testament, hence all the visitors clamoring for a piece of him as his character is called. The house represents our planet. The movie is about climate change and humanity's role in environmental destruction. So there you have in black and white. Um, we would love to hear from our listeners tweeted us. If, if you've watched it, let us know what you think. Um, but I think it's we should uh, move on to our great interview that we have. So Anna Jane, you had the chance to talk to someone that we both know and love and who has been a mentor to both of us for many years. So um, can you uh, tell us more about your conversation? Yeah. So speaking of, of the concept of, of Mother Earth, he gives us, you know, he really jumps into to the idea of the Earth as life giver and really a, a, a mother and a metaphor um, for for sustenance and nourishment. And it's a beautiful interview. I, you know, Peter Ilian really truly is one of my favorite people. I had the honor to work for him years ago in my early 20s. And he taught me so much about spirituality and about um, just just the beautiful myths and stories and uh, narratives that that, you know, kind of instruct how we think about these issues. Um, And we dive deep into that into how to how to build campaigns that that tell these compelling stories and provide epiphany moments, and um, also you know how um, mortality and and the idea around the legacy you want to leave um, kind of instructs his own work. And it's it's one of it was one of my favorite conversations I've had in a long time. And he's one of my favorite people, and I'm, I'm so excited to share it. Uh, with you, Marianne, and and all of our listeners. Well, I uh, agree. He has been an influential person who um has kind of we you and i have another mutual mentor lenny comb who um was an organizer who used the phrase of giving the magic away you know when you you realize that there's something that needs to be changed in the world and maybe you have the power to change it that that's a certain magic that you have that you then have this responsibility to give to other people and peter alien is someone who has given that magic uh to so many people including me and you and i can't wait for our listeners to to hear the interview. So and also on that note, um, I just realized this morning, and I can't believe we had we um, this didn't occur to us early, but today is I think the third anniversary of Lenny's death. Oh, um, passing into the next his next era, and 
um, yeah, just shout out to Lenny and all the people who were touched by him because he was critical to both of our lives. Wow, he was. And I bet I think about him just about every day and something that he taught me and how appropriate and fitting that we're having this interview with another great organizing mentor um, on such a such an important day. So, uh, wow. Okay, well, Lenny, this one's for you. And Peter, we love you. And let's listen to the interview. We'll be back right after this. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm from Melbourne, Australia. This is your dinner party climate fact for the week. According to meteorologists, in September 2017, the Atlantic produced the most hurricane activity of any month in any ocean in recorded history. My guest today is Peter Illion, who's one of my favorite people, longtime mentor and former boss. He's also a leading Christian environmental activist and thought leader. He's a former evangelical pastor, and he's the founder of Restoring Eden. Good to be here. So I'm really curious um, about your origin story. Like, how does an evangelical pastor go from uh, being an evangelical pastor to, you know, somebody who devotes his life to environmentalism. And I've heard you say a couple of times um, that you had this epiphany moment and that you went into the mountains and minister, but came out an environmental activist. Yeah. So can you tell us about that? Well, first, I was raised Russian Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, which has a rich theology of creation and a sense of kinship with nature. Um, so I wasn't raised evangelical. So I had a narrative that was embedded way before I became um, a pastor. When I was a pastor, though, it was right when the spotted owl issue began to happen and all my Christian friends were saying it's man versus nature. And my attitude was, well, it's humanity versus nature. Let's honor our sisters. Yeah. And second of all, um, that's you. a false, yeah, that's a false, uh, uh, question. I mean, it's, it's not man versus nature. We are nature. Humans are nature. And so it was that realization that a lot of the church preaches that we're made in the image of God, but they forget to preach that we're made of the substance of the earth. Mm -hmm. So my story was I was a pastor and decided I wanted to take a sabbatical. And I bought two llamas and I went on a thousand llama, uh, mile llama hike. I hold the record for long distance llama packing, but I'm sure there's Peruvians and, <laughs> uh, you know, Bolivians who would go, you know, they'd call me out. Second. They would yeah. call me out. Uh, so for... For uh, people in the United States, I hold the record. But it was four months in the woods. And um, I over the time, you find kind of the city wears away and you begin to hear the still quiet voice of creation singing mm -hmm. praise to the creator. Um, and so there's almost this love fest between cre the wilderness creation singing praise to the creator and, the, and declaring the glory and wisdom of God. And so I became really attuned to that. And then one night I came to um, this big crow basin, it was called, and hundreds of crows flew in the air. So it was a little bit eerie when you set up your tent. Middle of the night, I woke up with a screaming sound. I mean, I didn't know what it was. I laid in my tent and I said, is that a cougar? Is that a sound that a cougar, a llama makes when a cougar's just jumped on oh, its gosh. back? 
I hate to admit it, at 2 o'clock in the morning in the Pacific Northwest, you say, could it be Bigfoot? Oh, God. And I got <laughs> out of the tent, out. and it was a, a bull elk in his harem. It was an elk bugling. It's the most eerie sound you've heard. And I stood there, and I watched this elk in the moonlight. My llamas were grazing nearby. He had his harem, and then he ran away. But I sat there, and I realized the wilderness that these elk used to go all the way to the East Coast, and now there was a strip of land. It took me two days to walk it, took me 30 minutes to drive it, took me five minutes to fly over it, and that was all that was left for this elk's habitat. And then two days later, I got out of the forest into a clear cut, and I opened my Bible, and that day I read, speak out for those who cannot speak for themselves. And I said, who speaks for elk? Who speaks for the forest? Who speaks for God's creation? And I didn't know that there was a rich history of the church doing it. So I started restoring Eden to pick up a conversation I thought yeah. was lost. So tell us more about restoring Eden. I love the mission to make hearts bigger, hands dirtier, and voices stronger by rediscovering the biblical call to love, serve, and protect God's creation. Yeah. So can you tell me more? Like, what is that? rich history and, and also how we so lost it. <laughs> well, I think a lot of it has to do with the sense of kinship with nature. But I do this talk where I say, well, what are, you know, everybody agrees we're supposed to be stewards of the environment, or most people do. But that those are just words. What does it look like? And I think what happened is during the Enlightenment, when the evangelical church was first forming, they came out of the pietistic movement and began to add the sort of camp ministry, um, born again experience was also when um, the deistic world and, and the deism of Voltaire and all that rose up and it became God the watchmaker. Mm. But very quickly, people began to talk about the earth as a well-oiled machine. So not the earth is a garden singing praise to the creator, not the earth is a choir, not, you know, before that it was God is the king, God is the shepherd, God is as, you know, the father, all having authority but authority over living things. And to this day, nobody goes to jail for mistreating their tractor. Hmm. You still go to jail for abusing your cows or your horses, your dogs, your cats. And by taking away the fact that the earth is alive, and that, by that I don't mean sentient being. It's earth as mother as in life giver. Hmm. Genesis 1 says God created the land and the land brought forth life. And then it says, then God created the earth. Well, it's either contradictory. Who did it? Did God do it or did the land do it? Or did God bring forth life through the land? Hmm. And that's what it is. I mean, that's every biologist, ecologist understands that we are embedded in this planet. I mean, this is our home. We are dust. The word Adam, first human, and Adamah, red earth, we are earth and earthling. Hmm. It's not man versus nature. It's so important and so sad that we've lost that connection, but I'm really glad that you are out there trying to help people realize it and that you have taught me um, such important narratives and stories that you're, you know, for our listeners, Peter is one of the first people I came across when I started researching faith-based environmental activism and stories, and, and you just have such an amazing voice on this issue. Part of the struggle is that we've lost a sense of kinship with nature, and, and now we've actually labeled kinship with nature or loving nature as earth worship or all of this. And so um, 
people are almost knee-jerk against loving and serving and protecting nature. And yet the Search Institute, uh, based out of Minneapolis, did uh, a research on 30,000 young people and asked them where they felt the closest, the most spiritual, the closest to the divine. Number one. 84% listening to nature. Mm -hmm. Number two, 73% listening to music. At the bottom of the list was learning the tenets of my faith. You know, so I always say, if you see a kid walking in the woods with earbuds, don't knock him because it may be as good as it's ever going to (laughs) get. The most divine experience. And I think once you have a sense of kinship with nature, once you see the earth not as a machine, but as an organism, then you realize that climate change, what we take out of the earth, what we dump on the earth, all of these things are interconnected. It Hmm. becomes extremely complex. It's a lot easier to say God doesn't care and it's all going to burn up. But you can't be a Bible-believing Christian and take those statements that, that 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 is not what scripture says. Hmm. Yeah, it's so important. I whenever I talk at evangelical churches and I get that like, oh, well, we don't want to worship um, nature. I'm always like, well, we're pretty far away from doing that. Yeah. Like, I don't think we need to worry about that. I mean, there's, anytime soon. There's I mean, way more verses. <laughs> well, about people worshiping money. Yeah, totally. You know, one of my loves is utopian communities, <laughs> and I finally found a utopian community where there's no war. There's no poverty, there's no sex trafficking, there's no pollution, there's no crime. Hmm, where is it? Mars. Because <laughs> there's no life yeah. and there's no people. Hmm. So it's always going to be messy and ugly where there's people. And uh, so I think that the ultimate um, epiphany is what people call the transcendent moment or the oceanic moment where you suddenly realize you're inconsequential. Hmm to the universe, the world, the planet, and history. And that happens oftentimes, I think, in wilderness settings. When people feel small in the midst of wild earth, and then the Celtic Christians used to call it the thin place, the place in nature where the wall that separates them and God is a little bit thinner, where you can sense the presence of God. And that's why 83% of people say they feel... That's why you do the work you do and the work I do, because... I don't have to choose between loving God and loving creation. Hmm. God called me to love creation. When I love creation, I show God my love. I don't know. It's these false dichotomies that paralyze the church and I think stifle the soul of America. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And it starts by knowing your theology. Like even people that believe the earth is going to be destroyed. That's a theology that emerged with dispensationalism in the 1830s. And yet I talk to Catholics who say their members read Left Behind series and think this is the way it is. And if you Mm -hmm. believe the earth's going to be destroyed, then that says two things. God doesn't care. And it's a waste of time to take care of it. But that is not what Eastern Orthodox, Catholics, Episcopalians, Lutherans, Reform, that none of those teach that. That is a modern, well, I don't want to use the word heresy, but I think (laughs) teaching that needs to be challenged. Yeah, Yeah. the earth is machine and the earth destroyed. So you're renting a car that you never have to take back to the airport. You're not going to wash it. You're not going to take care of it. Yeah, and I think it's too, it's just so, I've, you know, on the occasion I've run into that theology, and it's thankfully a lot less often than I, than you would think. It's just like, well, even if that's the case, we're still charged with being good stewards, you know, like, and it's a, so anyways, very problematic for a lot of ways. But on another topic that you mentioned earlier is I'm 
totally fascinated with how we communicate around issues like climate change and environmental stewardship in general. I think you're an amazing communicator, probably, I mean, definitely one of the best I've ever come across, like your ability to kind of energize a room and leave people with deep emotions and these these really powerful epiphany moments is is unparalleled to anyone else that I've seen. Um, and before you were a minister, I'm sure being a minister helps as <laughs> you can give a great sermon, but you're also a marketing professional. And one thing that I've always taken away from, from learning from you is this idea that we have to start with why, not the how. And I feel like that's a really big missed opportunity in a lot of environmental campaigns. Like too often it's like, you know, it's like, do this policy or take this action. It doesn't really start with, well, why should I care in the first place? So can you speak to that? Like, how yeah. do we do that better? Well, we're doing this podcast here in Portland, Oregon, the home of Portlandia and the put a bird <laughs> on it movement. Uh, so even when uh, Bernie Sanders was here, a bird landed on his oh, uh, podium right. and everybody made, made fun of it. But uh, so in this case, we don't need to put a bird on it, but I do think we need to put a face on it or we need to put a story on it. So the problem is climate change can be, you know, hockey stick graphs and ozone layers and, you know, that drawing it's of heat really radiating. Dry, and yeah, and, and confusing. You know, I've had the privilege of, of traveling the country with people from Papua New Guinea and uh, the Arctic uh, Refuge and uh, Tuvalu. And, and indigenous Indigenous folks, people yeah. and totally Christian, totally indigenous, living with a sense of kinship with the land. And that doesn't mean that they don't hurt the land, but they hurt the land in a way that the land replenishes itself. So they may hunt, you know, they may, well, they collect coconuts and fish, and but they only take what they need. Otherwise, they're going to face starvation. Um, so I've seen these indigenous people uh Christ followers, um, but not Western, hmm. not consumers, not individualistic. Hmm. And part of our struggle is I think that our biblical faith has been co-opted by our culture. And you can really see it with folks making uh, free market issues, the dominant issues. I'm free market, free market with true costs. Yeah, And you can't measure what you haven't counted. And people avoid counting the health impacts and the environmental impacts of the choices they make. And that's just called externalizing the costs. And it is wrong. True justice demands honest math. Hmm. Or yeah. honest accounting maybe would be better. But yeah, know, I've yeah. always felt like that should be a pretty conservative worldview. Like the idea that you should internalize your cost is just like good economics. Yeah. And well, it's just economics and it is good economics because those costs are real. Yeah. The question is who pays has to them. Pay for them. You know, we pay for them through our taxes when people are getting sick or yeah. we pay for them in our lives when, you know, it's or our kids' lives when they're suffering from asthma. It's, it's well, definitely, it's always just struck me that, that we, this isn't like a bigger story. Like here, the fact that we are, Here's a great example. Or climate so, change for that matter. So Koch Brothers Industries in Indiana were um, refining uh, Canadian tar sands, which creates huge amounts of this highly toxic talcum powder called pet coke, which is also in Birmingham, where these communities are. And uh, the problem is the state of uh, Indiana said this pet coke is so toxic that they passed a law that they had to keep it covered from the time it came in to the time it was shipped out. 
Seems like a smart idea. But what they did was the Koch brothers looked at a map and said, oh, Illinois doesn't have that same law. And 10 miles across the border, they have an open site where they dumped it. Mm -hmm. And it blew into this Hispanic and African-American community. Their asthma rates went up 85% uh, to the point where the, the local school district had to have an ambulance sitting, waiting for within the district when kids were having these life-threatening asthma attacks to go save them. The Koch brothers didn't pay for any of that. All the asthma medicine, all the response came from households had, that were poor. These were poor people who were, whose kids were going to be lifelong asthma sufferers because the Petco people wanted to save the money it would cost to cover it. To me, that was egregious. I mean, that's evil. That's wrong. That's like yeah. the definition of evil, like hurting children so you can save Just Make dying. more money. Yeah. How many billions do you need? Yeah, it's, it's insane. So another way that I think that you've really, really impacted me and also like hundreds, if not thousands of other young people, but also pastors and, and fellow activists is by introducing us to this kind of experience of hands-on advocacy and civic engagement. I think that's my greatest sadness right now is that a generation of younger people that don't see it as the earth versus humanity have stepped back from civic engagement. And um, it really makes a difference how you vote, how you put pressure on. But it doesn't have the problem is I think people are going Republican or Democrat. It's time for an independent movement to rise up, but one that's defined, not that's, it's just a default. It's not, you're not Republican, you're not a Democrat, you must be an independent. So if, if you're a person who cares about the environment, who cares about justice, who doesn't feel they can vote Republican, who maybe doesn't feel comfortable voting Democrat, don't stop voting. Mm -hmm. Vote as an independent and let everybody know what you're voting for and what you count about. Voting takes so little time and it is so important. If it wasn't important, Citizens United, people wouldn't be, you know, they wouldn't have gamed the whole thing from gerrymandering mm -hmm. to, um, to campaign finances and all that. Voting matters. That was my big lesson as a Christian. The first time I went to DC and this congressman who was anti-endangered species said, well, these are a bunch of liberals posing as Christians. And I went to his office and I said, Congressman, I'm a four square pastor. Are you saying we're liberal posers? And uh, I watched him not be able to answer it. And he kept saying, but you know, we need jobs and jobs and jobs. And I says, God created these species, called them good and told them to fill the earth. I don't think when we get to heaven, and they, God says, why did you destroy my earth? You said, well, I, I needed a job to buy things I didn't need. Yeah. I don't know. We're foolish. And I think foolishness, it's not countered by wisdom. It's countered by love. I mean, I think love is a place, yeah. love and kinship and relationship. Um, people know the facts on why they should do this. Most people don't leave their dog in a car because they know it'll overheat. Well, the planet's the same way. Hmm. But this year in Portland alone, we had the wettest spring and the driest summer. Hmm. And how many record events do people have and to have before they go? Spring. Yeah, yeah. You know, the climate, it, we, maybe we made a mistake calling it global warming. We should have called it erratic weather pattern. And then people would <laughs> say, oh, shit. I see it now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's climate change, but that's become a buzzword. Yeah. Uh, that means different things to different people, but it is.
So you've had some health challenges over the years, and I feel like you've really wrestled with mortality in, in more intimate ways than a lot of people I know. And I'm, I'm curious how that you know, journey and challenge has influenced your perspective on, on your work and just life in general. How does it shape your message and the yeah. message you want to leave the world? Well, I've had two battles with mortality. When I was 15 years old, I had spinal meningitis and spinal encephalitis. was in a coma. They thought I'd be brain dead. When I came out of the coma, everybody had face masks and was crying. Wow. But two songs were popular then. Sunshine Man, he goes, you can't run your own life. I'll be damned if you'll run mine. Mm -hmm. I hope I can swear here. Um, totally and then the other was... Uh, uh, Cat Stevens, father and son, settled down, get a job. And he says, but I might die tonight. So I left at 15, 16 to find truth in life. Mm. I became a Christian. Mm. But being a Christian didn't mean the journey end. I mean, I think we're called to the gospel of reconciliation, loving God, loving our neighbors, loving creation. My second, and, and for those of you that are listening, I've just pulled my pant leg up to show Anna Jane, I've got ocular melanoma that has gone metastatic. So I should be 99% terminal. They started a new treatment, which is using my own body to fight the melanoma. It creates a vitiligo hmm. disease, but my cancer's stable and maybe even going into remission. So, oh, I'm so glad to hear that. It's sort of fun to say I had terminal cancer. <laughs> I, I still do You're technically. A walking miracle. <laughs> yeah. And um, but it also lets you understand that life is short, uh, life is temporal. Make it count. Make a difference. And when I left home with the first terminal diagnosis, I would hitchhike and I'd ask people what they thought was true in life. And what I heard from so many people was how quickly it passes and how they wished they had made a difference. Mm. So I've always said, you know, live my life. If I was on my deathbed, would it have been a life well lived? And now that I'm facing mortality again, I don't have regrets about the those choices I've made. I wish I was leaving my wife a little bit more money, but um, <laughs> but I may be around to work for it. So, yeah. you know, who... who here's to... Yeah, here's to hoping and praying. praying. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And to immune therapies, and where you... we've learned how to... That our own bodies can fight the corruption when they learn how. And maybe that's a lesson for the church. The body of Christ needs to learn to fight the corruption in the world around us. So we need to be the immunotherapy for a church that's been co-opted by culture as that maybe editorializing in my final words here. <laughs> I love it. I think that is an incredible metaphor. And just for people who want to follow up and see more info about the health studies and your work, where can they find it? Theoretically in www.restoringeden.org, but we're trying to get off of it, internet and go to Facebook. So <laughs> So look you up on Facebook. Facebook. And restoring yeah, Eden. Restoring Eden, yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much, Peter. This was incredible. Well, it's great being here. I'm glad you're getting a joy. <laughs> Portland, Oregon. I am. All right. That just about does it for us. Marianne and I want to thank you so much for listening. Also, thanks to our sponsor, the Sierra Club, and to the great band River Wireless for our theme music. This episode was produced by the sensational Zach Mack, who will not be joining us at the Work It Podcast Festival because it's a ladies podcast festival and he's not a lady, but we hope to see him when we're in LA and we love him anyway. 
subscribe to us on iTunes. And please also leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us get the word out. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, etc. And we are going to be posting all of our episodes and updates and news on our Twitter page, which again is at NPLH podcast. So be sure to follow us there. If you like our show or have any questions, comments, suggestions, or would like to be a part of the show by reading a dinner party climate fact for an upcoming episode, tweet at us. Again, we're at NPLH podcast. And remember, there's no place like home.